0: I say when it comes to stardom and Lauren, there are no accidents. Hi, Karen Peterson.
1: Okay. All right. Uh, No shenanigans. Uh, We we are a serious podcast. Yes, of course. (laughs) Okay we are very serious going <laughs> very seriously <and> professional <laughs> hello everybody and welcome to citizen dame the podcast where Ari Aster fucking sucks we fucking hate ariaster on this podcast i don't care what you say his movies are bad uh i am lauren of brooks and with me as always is karen peterson hello karen
0: hello and yes they suck they're not good they're not creative and they're not new
1: No no i just wanted to say that this has nothing to do with film noir which is actually what we're going to continue to talk about but ari aster sucks and is bad and every
0: time someone says that he's an innovative filmmaker somewhere a puppy loses its whiskers i don't know
1: (laughs) something bad happens oh well as as i think i i've said this, this by the way to everyone who's not on twitter and does not follow me on twitter first of all you're missing a lot uh second of all like this this came up because there's um there's been a new announcement of, of like a new Ari astro film so fine whatever it's gonna start joaquin phoenix and just reading the description and i've been assured that this is not true but at the same time i just read the description and i was immediately like he's remaking psycho like that was the first <laughs> thing that popped into my head because it's about a guy and his relationship with his overbearing mother Mm -hmm. and it's just like oh it's gonna be a crazy horror film it's like it's psycho isn't it it's fucking psycho it's also sounds a lot like joker it also sounds a lot like joker and it also the other thing that i came up with because he's already remade a boring person's version of rosemary's baby Mm -hmm. uh uh the devil's advocate like it's just like oh he's overbearing mother (laughs) dark horror film, doesn't know his father. His father's Satan, it's the fucking devil's advocate. That's what he's doing. And it's gonna be like, oh my God, what a twist, like, no no literally this, I'm is calling amazing. It right yeah. this is either psycho or the devil's advocate i'm calling it right now and i want everyone to apologize to me when this movie comes out and it turns out to be yes indeed either psycho or the devil's advocate or maybe both
0: i think i think more likely both because i think that's what he does is the basis of his films tend to be uh, you know centered around one thing but then he uses inspiration and straight up lifts material from other movies too so it's not just like a remake of the wicker man it's you know it's all these other influences as well
1: it's like i'm using the
0: term influences generously
1: (laughs) i feel like midsummer is is like a remake of the wicker man but filtered through you know bergman's persona but without actually understanding what bergman's persona is about Yes, like that's the direction that he went, and yeah, like, like I said uh, on Twitter, i one of the things that actually drives me crazy about Ari Aster is less about his actual films and more about the fact that they're treated as being these, you know, remarkable, innovative art films at, when he's actually just rehashing stuff that better filmmakers have done better. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's fucking mooring. I'm sorry, Midsummer is fucking boring oh my gosh i so almost sleep watching
0: that movie it was so bad it was a got, miserable experience
1: i got half an hour in and i'm sitting there going like okay so some horrifying stuff has happened you know but i'm i'm less horrified and more really really bored please dear god something happened and even when things happen i was like how are you making this uninteresting how right. Right. how exactly You've got, like oh it's like this this cultish community in like sweden and everybody's doing drugs so there's like all this tension and everything it's like how is this dull how am i bored to fucking peers how well, like, is this possible yeah
0: like for for example and yes <laughs> this is going to be a spoiler for the movie so if you haven't seen it and you still want to for some reason if we haven't talked you out of that bad decision um <laughs> you might want to fast forward 30 seconds but perfect example is the scene with the ritual suicide yeah the two old people and it's like they're high up on this cliff and you kind of sense what's coming and then the woman jumps and it's this like horrifying scene because she splatters all over the rocks below in front of this entire community including um madeline or not madeline uh florence Pugh's character who has just been dealing with the suicide of her sister who also killed her parents like it's you know she's dealing with stuff and so that scene it's like okay there is a there's a version of that where it's a really interesting exploration of the trauma that she has not fully dealt with and the suicide and how for some people that really is the best choice things like that like i'm not saying that it is i'm just saying like there's an exploration where you can look into that and and go down that road but he doesn't do that he sets that scene up entirely for the visuals and just to show brains splattering all over the rocks and horrifying someone who doesn't know what's coming and who has experienced something terrible like that's such a boring way to handle that scene and it's such a dumb thing to include in the movie
1: yeah and I think that I think that that's one of the problems with midsummer and to, and to a slightly lesser extent hereditary is that it is all set up for the visuals. It's all about what things look like. and it and the fact is, I mean I again I hate to say this, um, he's not good enough to do that. There are some directors that can actually get away with that. I think of someone like Stanley Kubrick or or Berkman for that matter. Mm-hmm. Um, who can get away with setting up films or with using you know ex- exceptionally long takes or long scenes where very little happens and doing it primarily for the visuals the problem with Ari Aster is that one his visuals aren't interesting enough to justify it no and two there's nothing un- there's no narrative structure underpinning the visuals so it's just like oh this it's this really meticulously constructed image it's like okay great why do I care like tell me why I care and I don't care that's that's the thing there isn't any tension there isn't any narrative movement there isn't any like structure underpinning those images and so I'm like okay so what what we've got here are some nice images that you spend way too much time on and nothing Mm-hmm. Like that that's that is the the sum total of those films and then also with midsummer and i just remember talking with one of my friends who's doing a phd at the time and telling her about it and being like, okay so this is what happens she's like that is absolute fucking bullshit no one ever behaves like that that is not how phds work <laughs> no like no one this is you not possible yeah you wouldn't
0: be able to do that like it's not there's no school that is an accredited institution of higher learning where they would allow phd candidates to set up anything that way and yeah
1: yeah it, it just- oh i'm on this
0: trip and i just decided what i'm gonna do my whole project on no like there's classes <laughs> building up to your dissertation like there's a
1: whole process involved yeah, that, that's the thing of just like wait a minute aren't you like three years into your phd or something like that i mean you're supposed to know what like, you're you going go
0: into your phd program already knowing what your dissertation is going to be more yeah, or less
1: definitely with a direction to it and like you know it yeah I, I was just like it's not just a paper you're like oh i don't know what to write about i guess i'll write about this like, i guess i'll write about this that this other guy has already proposed and has proposal accepted like i'm just like yeah. I, this doesn't this isn't true this doesn't work no <laughs> yeah. this is not how that goes at all yeah. anyways anyways we are not going to sit around really like Ari not Aster Ari Aster. does not
0: have a phd
1: yeah just like fuck you Ari Aster um yeah. I mean was your week that is painfully <laughs> obvious that Ari Aster does not have a PhD yeah. um, <laughs> yes I'm being elitist and snarky
0: but I mean I don't have a PhD either no, but I either. do at least know how they work
1: <laughs> anyways yes uh my week has been just fine everything is cool uh fuck you Ari Aster <laughs> how about you
0: um my week was pretty good i actually had a fun experience the other day i got to talk to a group of high school kids that are um they're in an arts high school and they're all in the film program i have a friend who teaches film at this high school and so i got to do a conversation And it was mostly him asking me questions, but it was opened up for the students to ask stuff too. And I tried to include them and ask them some stuff as well. And it was just really fun. And I was just like, it's most, it was mostly seniors. There were some juniors in the group too. Um, But I got to talk a lot about representation and diversity in, um, in film and, and, how you know my passion is for promoting female voices and stuff and um it was really they were they were a good bunch i mean it was on zoom so a bunch of them had their cameras off so it was hard to tell how many of them were really paying attention and invested but the ones that were involved i was just like oh man the children are are, are gonna be okay <laughs> like we're we're in good hands if these are some of the kids that are gonna be making movies in the future so really smart group and and really excited and uh interested and they were asking me for like um some female filmmakers i would recommend and stuff and so that was cool so
1: yeah it was a good experience that's really cool that sounds that sounds great
0: i feel like i got more out of it than they
1: did but (laughs) but it was fun but i'm certain that they got a lot out of it and and um and it's really good that like there actually is another generation of students kids that are interested in this kind of thing and that are hopefully going to even build on you know some of the work that has already been done because that's one of the things that's been driving me crazy lately is how so much of film criticism seems to be stagnant like we keep on repeating the same arguments over and yeah. over again and even those of us who don't want to repeat the same arguments then you know the next thing comes up it's just like oh my god we've done this do not yeah. make me explain this to you again
0: yeah why are we uh, talking about Ari aster and why his films are boring again. <laughs> yeah, you know? ex- exactly. Jeez, like, we're gonna have to do that every time he has a movie out, but
1: yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. It's but you know, like articles about it's a wonderful life and Citizen Kane and stuff like that. i like, oh my god, we've done this, we have yeah. done this so many times. We've been
0: doing it since the 40s, <laughs> like, yeah, eh. but but it was cool because it was just like, I was, I was, I Found myself really thinking about how fortunate these kids are. You know, I asked them, how many of you have heard of Lois Weber? How many of you have heard of Francis Marion and um, you know, Elaine May and some of these other women? And they were nodding, they were raising their hands. And I was just like, oh my gosh, I'm so excited for them that they're growing up in a world where they don't have to like discover these people that that, you know, no one ever talks about, that that we're and I I mean, I think that you and I are. You know, a very small part of that, but getting to to help people uncover these these women that have been kind of buried by history and talked over for so long, they're in a world where they get to just grow up knowing that those people existed and their contributions, and uh, I think that's pretty cool.
1: Yeah, I mean, only a couple of years ago, uh, probably if you had asked me, you know, name name some famous female filmmakers pre you know 1960 Mm -hmm. or whatever i uh, one of the first people that would have popped into my head unfortunately would have been uh lini riefenstahl and and that tends to be and that's not unusual that that tends to be the people the the person that people immediately go to and um which you know first of all she's obviously not the only female filmmaker working before 1960 uh and was also a nazi so (laughs) <laughs> we would rather talk about other people but now if you ask me the same question it's like okay well dorothy arzner ida lapino lois weber uh a
0: lot of yeah
1: exactly um uh what's her name muriel box uh, mm-hmm. uh and now i'm blanking on the name of the woman who directed olivia but uh yeah her too she's female french female director um but yeah but so there's there are actually those those people immediately come to mind more and it would be great if you know that was something that i knew about when i was 16 or 17 years old Mm -hmm. um rather than you know just learning about it a couple of years ago and it was just something you know i kind of knew that there were female filmmakers working in that period but i didn't really know who they were and i just assumed that all right well they weren't really important i had Um, no
0: idea that prior to 1927 film director was one of the most common professions for women like if you look at the 1920 Mm -hmm. census women that were working outside of the home in california filmmaker filmmaker was like the most common job
1: (laughs) it's just crazy and and you think about the number of women that probably whose films particularly in the 1920s these films we just don't have anymore right and and there were probably even women who were working um, just sort of as workaday directors who were making shorts, et cetera. That you know we've never even heard of because they weren't particularly well documented or um, no one really talked about them. So mm-hmm. and their films are now lost or they're not available. Uh, and you know who who knows? Maybe we'll rediscover some great female filmmaker that no one ever really talks about anymore.
0: Yeah. Well I mean even just a few years ago nobody really knew anything about Alice Guy and now she's more and more becoming celebrated as such an early pioneer so they're out yeah. there and we're finding them that's a good thing.
1: Yeah and it's really good that you're like talking to kids about that and that they're interested in this kind of thing. That's yeah awesome. that's really cool. It was, it was really fun so I'm glad I got to do it that's really cool well today we are not talking about women uh we are talking about men (laughs) we'll probably talk a little about women but we'll definitely talk a little (laughs) bit about women uh so we're going to talk about a uh this is still noir, remember and we are going to talk about a very specific actor who is heavily associated with film noir in fact i would argue he's probably one of the the greatest film noir stars and that is humphrey bogart Bogey. Uh, bogey everybody loves bogey i don't know anyone who doesn't actually like humphrey bogart like i don't want to
0: know anybody who doesn't like humphrey bogart
1: yeah he's he's just he's classic he's so identifiable there's really no one like him he really is just one of the pinnacles of stardom in in the classical period uh so we're gonna chat about humphrey bogart so let's start off with discussing like i now i have this thing about bogey actually oh. um because I got into his films when I was a teenager. Uh, He was kind of, him and Cary Grant were sort of my early um, classic film crushes. Oh yeah, totally. So I've seen a lot of Bogart films, some of which are very random. And and thankfully a number of them are actually still available to be streamed, et cetera. Uh, But so I have this really eclectic kind of relationship with Humphrey Bogart. But what are some of your favorite Bogey films, Karen?
0: uh Yeah, I mean, I know it's not really noir, but Casablanca is the to me, that's the best. It's the best bogey movie. It's one of the very best films ever made. Um, I I have some personal attachments to that just because it was my grandpa's favorite movie. And I remember the first time I watched it, it was with him, and and I had never seen him get emotional watching a movie except for watching Casablanca. And um yeah so that one has a special place in my heart but i mean maltese falcon is awesome the big sleep is fantastic uh i finally just just this week watched the petrified forest which was an interesting um an interesting film that's like one of his earliest and then um also oh my gosh i'm forgetting one the desperate hours i love the desperate hours one of his very last films so how about you
1: uh, the desperate hours is one of those films that i think tends to be forgotten almost like yeah. i not even forgotten it until i think you mentioned it
0: yeah i put it in the poll and it did not win <laughs> yeah
1: <laughs> but, it didn't no, but come it, close <laughs> it does seem to be forgotten and it's a great film and it, it is i don't think that it's his last last film i think his last film is the harder they fall
0: yeah um, it's like but it's it's very end it's like one of his last couple so yeah
1: yeah and and you can see it he's very tired he's he's obviously sick etc but he's so good in it
0: he is that um, movie has inter- yes yes and i think that's what i love about it and i think that's what i love in general about about humphrey bogart is that um he can be this really menacing scary person he can also be this romantic lovely person and sometimes in the same movie <laughs> <laughs> and i think it's so fascinating to yeah. watch him because he just he really uh he was in a lot of ways to me he was a very unexpected um sort of star
1: well he he is and particularly in the period when he really becomes a star so uh he now he was he had been working in hollywood and on stage since forever basically Mm um he he played particularly on stage he played what is usually referred to as the juvenile role so if you want to think about if you know what a juvenile is it's kind of he's the romantic leading man basically yeah Um, which
0: is so funny like to say to throw words like juvenile because to me he was always 50 even yeah. when he was twenty five,
1: <laughs> well, and, and there is a reason for that too. So, so, like, so on Broadway, and if you look up some pictures of young Humphrey Bogart, like he really was just classically handsome. Yes, um, and and then, as he aged, his face changed, and he got that kind of more rugged, sort of hard-boiled look about him, and that and that developed more. But a lot of his really early roles, um, he does sort of play this babyface hero sometimes. Sometimes he's a babyface killer uh and so warner brothers essentially did not know what to do with him for a large section of his early career they cast him as gangsters they cast him as mexican bandits at at one (laughs) point he is in a western i think with james cagney as well and it's very (laughs) bizarre uh they and they cast him in sort of romantic leading roles secondary roles he often played um sort of henchmen uh as he does in one of my favorite performances because he's just fucking gorgeous in it in uh three on a match in which bogart just appears as this i don't think he even has a name he's just like this villainous henchman who walks around looking sexy
0: i need to uh, see that one i have not <laughs> seen that movie <laughs>
1: the the film itself is interesting it's very much one of those early uh warner brothers kind of social problem films with that mm-hmm. has a very moralistic tone but it's an interesting film and uh, and then bogart appears just like oh my god bogart oh my god (laughs) wow okay (laughs) let's talk about this a little bit um he's
0: funny because he's one of those actors that and there are a few like this where uh i mean they're very handsome and very attractive people uh and really talented but it's surprising that they would choose to become an actor like that just seems like such an unexpected path for them because they just like he's one that to me kind of has this air of like (laughs) he's more i don't know how to describe it without sounding wildly offensive but like he seems like the kind of person who would think acting is beneath him
1: Or something yeah maybe so i can see that
0: yeah and so it's surprising that he went that direction i think marlon brando is another one that is like it's weird to me that he wanted to be an actor you know not that and i think i mean part of i think why that's so weird to me is because of how good they are at it i don't know this doesn't make any sense but yeah he's just one that is very surprising star to me because i would think that he would have gone like some different path i don't know
1: yeah, Bogart has in a lot of particularly his most famous roles he's very laconic. Mm-hmm. Um and he's very a lot of his roles are very cynical and I think that part of that is because we're talking about roles that are a good bit later in his career really if you look at the trajectory of his career the point that he becomes a star he is actually quite a bit older he's in his his mid 40s by that point. Yeah. Um he's you know and and like I say his face is aged and and he's just aged in a particular way that makes his face much more he's still an attractive man i think but he it makes his face much more interesting than it was when he was like in his 20s Mm -hmm. um and part of that is probably because he he was a hard drinker he was a hard smoker (laughs) yes uh as we know about him he also had a a really rough personal life for quite a while um and wasn't he
0: married like four
1: times he was married four times and his his last wife before before lauren mccall um his last wife was very um she she was abusive essentially she uh she would throw things at him she was paranoid about him cheating on her she was a really heavy drinker both of them were very heavy drinkers at the same time and they they were not they were not happy with each other
0: um that never goes well
1: yeah and and so it was not it wasn't a happy marriage and he felt kind of trapped by it and so there's all there's all this personal history so and, and a lot of that i think definitely contributes to his star power um because he does change he does get this you know cynical cynical veneer almost in a lot of his roles and that really starts with the petrified forest um which was not quite the star making role that it probably was supposed to be but it it began to to elevate him to a different level of stardom he was stopped he stopped being a bit player after that
0: yeah i was watching something this week that was talking about him and and how that movie like after that he started becoming the um what they call him the the poor man's george raft like if george raft wasn't available for a movie they would get humphrey bogart and then eventually he just started getting stuff instead of george raft
1: yeah and, and so you've got so you've got the petrified force and then high sierra which is um written by john houston who eventually becomes Hit him and Bogart are friends, uh, and directed by Raoul Walsh, and that's again that's a development kind of of the character that he's playing in the Petrified Forest, where he's a gangster but he's sympathetic. Mm-hmm. Um, you like him, you kind of want him to survive, you kind of want him to get away with it. It's it's a very tragic story in a lot of ways.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and then following High Sierra, you get into what are probably his most famous films and really the star-making turns, which are The Maltese Falcon, and Casablanca so let's talk about the maltese falcon which is the the he plays sam spade it's the beginning of him kind of being identified more as a film noir actor Mm -hmm. um and and it is it's it's an interesting film it's an odd film actually if you look at the the kind of the quality of films that are surrounding it the maltese falcon is very um complicated it's very well shot it's john houston And it's nasty. It's kind. It's a mean film in a lot of ways. The story itself is very mean. Bogart is mean. Mm -hmm. Yeah,
0: that that one. It's uh, it's funny because I, you know, sometimes movies will come out now and people will be like, "Oh, this plot is so complicated." And and it's like, well, think about the Maltese Falcon, where you've got people changing identities, and you've got people changing. You don't know who who's good and who's bad who's lying and who's telling the truth uh there's a lot of that in in the maltese falcon and it's fascinating and for me it took a couple of of viewings to really understand at the heart of it what was what was fully going on and really totally understand the story because it is complex but i think that bogart's character in that is so fascinating because he uh he has this this moral center he does have like his own kind of guiding code but it's not necessarily the one that is anybody else's you know like his his morals are are a bit um a bit off but they're there and for him they're clearly defined it's a cool character
1: yeah he, he's a fascinating character because there are you <laughs> you like him and you don't like him I uh-huh. think that that's one of the interesting things with sam spade is that he's a really intriguing protagonist and you're intrigued by him and intrigued by like him solving the case and everything um at the same time he's very much of a piece with everybody else in the film he is he does have a moral compass but it's very skewed mm-hmm. um you know he does have this very it's it's skewed for the rest of us it's not skewed for him as you said he knows what he thinks is right and what he thinks is wrong uh and where he's willing to cross a line and where he's not um but he he's quite mean like he he slaps people around he slaps peter Laurie around a lot he slaps (laughs) um mary astor around yeah and and you watch that and on the one hand you're like well i mean she slaps him around too like there's a little bit of a give and take there but at the same time it's like this is not a nice man right he's not a nice person um and yet you are rooting for him you you want him to solve the case you want him to to win ultimately
0: Mm -hmm.
1: um even though you know as an as in a lot of film noirs, it's not going to work right he's not he's going to be successful the case might get solved things might turn out you know morally correct but it's going to desperately bruise him it is desperately going to hurt a lot of other people
0: yeah at what cost will things yeah. work out the way they are supposed to in the end yeah
1: yeah and he's kind of trapped in, he's trapped in it to a certain degree in that he he pursues it because his partner has been murdered mm-hmm. um and and he gets so involved in it and, and then it people all, think that he
0: did it and the fact yeah. that people think like that he could
1: <laughs> is in itself an interesting
0: um take on that character because like even the cop who is his friend thinks that he's capable of that
1: yeah uh, have you read the book
0: no i have not
1: at all the, the book is very interesting you know if you think the movie is nasty the book is like five times nastier and and part of that is because sam spade is nastier it's it's a lot more complicated um spade I, if i remember correctly is actually supposed to be this like six foot tall blonde Huh. um which is hilarious given that they cast humphrey bogart
0: who is who, not six foot tall blonde
1: who is like a five foot seven brunette <laughs> you know? yes. um but but so the the book in itself is it kind of doubles down on a lot of the things that the film does and partially part of the reason why uh the film doesn't do it is because it can't it can't get away with the sensor in terms of the sensors um but it, it, it kind of puts into perspective the way the things that the films that the film engages with, and and you know in a film noir that the detective is going to succeed, um, but it could kill him in the end, or it could destroy his soul. More likely, is going to destroy his soul because it's even harder and tougher to continue to survive knowing what you have done. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things I wanted to talk about, uh, and I, I will tell everybody right now skip ahead if you haven't seen the maltese falcon because i'm going to spoil the ending um but i really want to talk about the ending of the maltese falcon when it all kind of comes together and and it's revealed who murdered miles and spade has to make a choice yes about what he's going to do and when i first saw this film i was devastated <laughs> i was absolutely I think we're supposed to be yeah because again you know it's kind of like you like spade to a certain degree and you also like and i can't i'm blanking on her on the character name but the Mary Astra character you like her bridget? but also something like that. yeah bridget bridget o'shaughnessy but they're also mm-hmm. terrible human beings yes yeah. <laughs> and and that moment when he's just like i'm gonna have some you know i'm gonna have some really tough nights after i've sent you down and he's he's talking about basically sending her to prison and she's almost certainly going to be executed because she's committed multiple murders Mm -hmm. uh and you know oh man i'm gonna have some real tough nights but i'll get over it (laughs) and it's so the way that he plays it is on the one hand you can feel this he doesn't want to do it but he's also like he's hard-boiled he's like i'm i'm gonna do it because that's you know that this is what i have to do Mm -hmm. uh it's i mean it's yeah a tough film in some ways
0: (laughs) it is well and that's part of what i what i mean when i say that he's this character well humphrey bogart throughout his career he's able to be these people who um uh do things maybe that are not expected that uh you never know which direction he's gonna go because the way that that ending happens in the maltese falcon it's like you could just as easily see him helping her cover it up and get away with it you know and you don't know until the end what he's ultimately going to choose and i think that that's such a such an interesting way to do that especially when you look at studio films of the era and it's like you know the good guys are supposed to be very clearly good and the bad guys are very clearly bad and to have someone who you're ultimately not sure which direction they're going to choose uh is is a very it's a it's a fairly unique thing
1: yeah it's a deeply ambiguous film Uh in a lot of ways and and i think that some of the 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 way that the film plays with character sympathies and and the fact that you have a you have a great cast but and it's a cast made up primarily other than really other than mary astor it's a cast made up primarily of character actors Mm -hmm. um you got sydney greenstreet and peter lorry both of whom are, are fantastic i mean you know green street i think it was his first film (laughs) um and 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 he's he's wonderful you know he's so he's so menacing and yet at the same time so pathetic uh and you get the same thing with peter laurie and um elisha cook jr who plays the um uh the henchman green street's henchman. all of them uh, and and bogart himself they're all these character actors they're so they're they're recognizable in a lot of ways and probably a lot of viewers of the period be like oh yeah that's peter laurie like i've seen him in other things um and usually playing the same kind of part uh but as a result it means that the film isn't dominated by like star power in the same way um as as a film would be if if say at the time in the time if like george raft had been playing the character. Right um because bogart wasn't as big of a star no one was as big of a star really mary astor is the only one who was uh, any sort of a major star at that period and even she was sort of on her way out she had played um she wasn't as she didn't command as much star power as she used to in the 20s and 30s Mm -hmm. so it it really is a fascinating film and it does sort of begin bogart's kind of descent into film noir (laughs) it does uh so the companion piece to that and we're going to skip over casablanca because as much as i love casablanca it's not a film noir it's not uh it's just
0: an amazing movie
1: it is an amazing (laughs) movie so he appears in casablanca in 1942 and then um the next really big noir that he does is uh the big sleep yes although i guess you could maybe call to have and have not a a noir although i think you're stretching it just a little bit but definitely the big sleep is is the companion piece to the maltese falcon Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's interesting that bogart sort of plays the two most iconic um hard-boiled detectives sam spade and philip marlowe right uh who were written by two different authors by the way it's some something that people get confused a great deal uh Dashiell Hammett wrote the Maltese Falcon and uh Raymond Chandler wrote The Big Sleep so what are your feelings about The Big Sleep that it is we were talking about what your what our favorite Bogart movies are uh The Big Sleep is actually probably my favorite Bogart movie
0: yeah um I think similar to The Maltese Falcon it's got a very complicated um plot a lot of characters you're not sure who to trust who not to trust and i i think movies like that are just fun you know and and again i think philip marlowe in different ways from sam spade but he's also this morally uh less ambiguous but you know you're just not always sure what decisions he's gonna make and and uh yeah i think that's a lot of fun the big sleep is is such a um such a fascinating film in a much different way i think that um i mean murder mysteries are always fun really well done ones but um yeah i don't know it's your favorite why don't you talk about it
1: (laughs) uh yeah so i love the big sleep partially or partially in a large part because of bogey and bacall yeah, and this was not their first film to together. Their first film together was To Have and Have Not, but this is obviously the one This like, is
0: the one, yeah.
1: This is the one for the two of them. <laughs> and they're so good together. You know, just leaving out their personal relationship, which at this point they they were I think they got married during the filming of the the um the big sleep.
0: Oh did they? I thought it was after.
1: I thought it was during the filming, but I might That's be interesting. I might be mistaken by that because he had to get a divorce and um I'm fairly positive that they either got married during the filming or directly. They certainly got married before the film was released because there was a lot of playing up of their relationship uh, as part of the film's release. So, but yeah, but the so the two of them. I mean, she is, I think, undoubtedly his best leading lady. Oh, for Uh, sure.
0: The chemistry they have is just—it's—it's electric. It really is. Yeah.
1: And and it isn't, it's sexual, but it isn't just sexual. There's this the way that they play off of each other. Um, and you can look at it in, in pretty much any scene that they share in the big sleep. The way that they go back and forth, the way that they talk, there's there's flirtation and there's animosity and there's, you know, kind of fascination. And the entire time they're on screen together, they're just like, they're sparring with each other, but they're also having fun. And and that's quite. Obvious in pretty much every single scene that they're in together.
0: Yeah, um, they match wits in a way that he doesn't quite reach with anybody else ever. Yeah, it, it
1: just doesn't have the same rhythm. And part of this is the dialogue. Part of it is the fact that Howard Hawks is directing it, and um, uh, and you know, Hawks is is a, is masterful in terms of uh, creating dialogue and creating that kind of dynamic tension between actors. Mm-hmm. Um, But the the other thing is simply the the way that they play off of each other. And in fact, their chemistry was so strong on that film um, that they added scenes to kind of pump up the chemistry. So the the fairly famous horse racing conversation uh, that they have where Bogie and McCall are just basically sitting in a room, sitting in like a club, talking to each other and they have this long conversation about horse racing and they're not talking about horse racing, <laughs> uh, but it's an intense scene and it's wild and it's funny. And, um, and it, it, was, it was added uh, after the film had been completed. And then they went back and, and added more scenes because the Warner brothers and because Hawks kind of recognized the fact that this is what we need to be doubling down on. We need to be focusing on their relationship because they are so good together.
0: Hmm, I didn't know that that was added later.
1: Uh, there are a couple of sequences that were added later, oh. and in fact, um, there was one release of *The Big Sleep* on disc where you could actually watch the pre-release version, which is a, labeled as 1945, um, and the theatrical release version, which is 1946. So there, are, and you can see the differences. So there are scenes that weren't included. Um, there were a couple of scenes in the 1945 version that were included. There's a, I believe, a meeting with the DA uh and a couple of others that were more of just bogart on his own um investigating the case and and you can see and the difference is is not you know complete it's not like these are two completely different films but you can definitely see the difference that them kind of beefing up the relationship um mm-hmm. between Marlowe and uh and, and miss stern uh like how that worked and how that was so important but it's a complicated film in a lot of other ways, and this yes. sort of solidifies, you know, Bogart's position as this, this great film noir actor, uh, because he's sort of muddling his way through in much the same way that the audience is. The most of the film is focalized through him. There, are, I don't think there are any scenes that he does not actually appear in, um, and and most of it is him sort of trying to puzzle out what the fuck is going on. <laughs> And it's interesting in that the film itself doesn't completely know what's going on because Raymond Chandler didn't know what was going on. <laughs> uh, and famously, there was one murder that the that the director, that uh, Howard Hawks, and uh, and I think one of the producers actually had to call up Raymond Chandler and say, <laughs> "So who kills this guy?" And Chandler, like, was like, "I don't know, uh-huh. I have no idea." <laughs> uh and so it's it's sort of solved there's like an implication that they know who killed him and it's just like but did they did she i don't think that works
0: (laughs) yeah i have i still have questions on that one yeah
1: but it's an interesting film for that because you've got this film that is so complicated Mm -hmm. that works so well and in some ways should be incoherent because it does not solve the mystery completely and yet it 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 works you know it it makes sense it's you feel satisfied at the end of the film that everything has worked out the way that it's supposed to
0: yeah well that's like in for example in writing just in general in writing um you have to learn the rules so that you know how to effectively break them because there are some there are a lot of great film or great books or whatever that Don't follow the standard conventions, but they know why and they know what they're doing. And I think in film, it's the same way. You have to understand kind of what the accepted rules are of a film so that you know how to do it right when you want to go against those conventions. And I think that's one of the things that really works with the big sleep, maybe even by accident, but you know, it's kind of what I was talking about with the Maltese Falcon, where there's certain expectations the bad guys are clearly bad the good guys are clearly good every loose end is going to get tied up like in the 40s and 50s that was just the expectation the audiences had and the fact that the big sleep is so well made when it doesn't uh, fit all of those things is is really because howard hawks is such a good director um, because the script is so good because it's based on a novel that's so good it, it works because these people knew the rules and then and knew how to effectively break them
1: yeah absolutely it's it's um part of the point i think of the story uh and certainly the point of the book and to a certain extent the point of the film is that you don't know everything you don't understand everything mm-hmm. um it doesn't completely fit together there's still questions at the end and it's, it, it's certainly for Marlowe as a character it's a question of how much further could he possibly try to go um and how much more damage could he possibly do because one of the problems that that he faces is that in the film is that he's fallen in love with this woman um and he's essentially you know again spoiler alert for those who have not seen the big sleep (laughs) he's essentially going to to arrest or catch her sister who Mm -hmm. is the primary culprit although there are a number of different culprits throughout the movie (laughs) um but he's the primary culprit for for the initial murder that kind of spurs everything on uh and and marlow kind basically makes a choice to stop Mm -hmm. um and to not go any further because he's going to he's going to cause more damage by uncovering more of the truth than if he just lets the truth remain buried uh and And it's a it's a difficult decision that he makes, but it also makes sense and it's weirdly satisfying like I say for for the viewer, even though we don't get the full solution. um, There's still that sense of like uh, everything has worked out the way that it should Uh, and it is in a lot of ways, a a very interesting step forward for um, what we're eventually going to be called film noir because you begin to see that a lot more in the film noirs of the late 40s and the 50s and certainly into the 60s where solutions the the point is not the the solution of who killed so and so or um you know who is stealing from who it's Mm -hmm. more about the experience of what is happening and uh and And what you're going to do about it it. yeah Mm -hmm. what you're going to do about it what is right to do about it and and so again it's it's that other moral it's interesting in the sense that Marlowe, in many ways has a much more fluid moral compass or moral universe than sam spade does because he's not going to condemn people with given that it's just like okay so you've got this this girl who's definitely going to be arrested she's probably going to be put in an asylum or in a sanitarium Mm -hmm. um and he recognizes that she's been exploited, that she's been mistreated, that her, her behavior, and not, not just by individuals in the film, but probably her entire life. And her behavior is sort of a result of all of that. It's a result of being spoiled, it's a result of being exploited, it's a result of being abused. Mm-hmm. And even though the film itself does have this sort of rule that there has to be some kind of punishment for the killer, you don't. there's not much punishment at the end of the day
0: right because he recognizes that what she really needs is help not punishment and it's done in such a way that you trust him by the end and so that that's part of that's part of that whole breaking the rules that i was talking about because the audience is willing to accept that the killer is not necessarily punished or the you know at least one of them you know that that this ending is going to happen the way that it is because this feels like the right decision
1: yeah uh, and it's something that like i say feeds into later noirs where you don't have these satisfying complete solutions to everything everything is not tied up in a nice little package yeah uh which is unusual in a lot of ways for both for mysteries and and for films of this period uh and then you know and i think at some point we're probably going to talk about the long goodbye which is another adaptation of a Marlowe novel which is even more confusing and confused <laughs> than the big sleep but um uh but it, it has a similar attitude of like it's more about the detective's journey not really about getting there coming to the conclusion of it
0: mm-hmm. yeah we're actually doing an entire episode on that one
1: right that's right i think that it won the poll <laughs> it did <laughs> So that is a that's a very different film to The Big Sleep, I must say, but it it does act it does share a lot of affinities with it at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so Big Sleep is 1946, and of course it's Bogie and Bacall, um, and then Bogart kind of becomes this sort of go-to character or or figure for a lot of film noir. Um, I think one of his best roles is in In a Lonely Place which so good had, i was gonna say have you seen that you better have seen it. i have
0: seen that and i love it it's so good
1: but i mean you talk about moral complexity yes <laughs> in you fact talk-
0: i'm gonna admit that the ending of that one actually disappoints me as a modern viewer just a tiny bit really, but we'll why? get to that in a second well let's talk about the movie and then i'll say all
1: right. why. all right so so in a lonely place uh bogart plays a he plays a screenwriter who is also a drunkard who's also the uh, i mean they don't completely clarify but he's abusive he's violent he has a tendency to lash out at people and to throw punches
0: i feel like it's pretty clear when he almost kills the guy on the side of the road or when he has like road rage at the very beginning
1: the first scene that we introduce
0: where we meet him
1: so so the story is is about basically a a young woman that he hires briefly to to do some typing for him right late at night to do some typing uh and again
0: she's supposed to read um she's like reading this book that he has to adapt and he wants her to tell him the story
1: yeah that's right yeah i had blanked on that um and so Come to she,
0: my place and tell me the story
1: <laughs> so she does this late at night and she's seen leaving his house um, by his upstairs neighbor Gla- who's played by gloria graham and then she she winds up dead and she's dead in in a way that like bespeaks a great deal of violence um and he becomes implicated in her murder Because obviously, as far as the police know, et cetera, he was one of the last people to see her alive. And he also has this reputation for being violent. Um, So what is interesting about this is that then, then what happens after that is this development of his relationship with the Gloria Graham character Um, and, and sort of, and kind of the solution of the mystery, but the mystery is not really the point. The right. point is kind of the dissolution of his character and an examination of his violence and his, um, his darkness, I guess, his psychological issues mm-hmm. um, that, come, that sort of come to the fore as a result of this and particularly in the, in the impact that it has on this new relationship that is sort of saving him but also isn't. Uh, because there's, there's this constant open question throughout the film about did he kill this girl? And that's the question that Gloria Graham constantly asks. Uh, And and at, at a certain point, it you begin to wonder, does it really matter if he killed her? Because he could have killed her, and that is what's more terrifying than whether or not he actually committed the murder.
0: That's what I think is interesting about the way the movie is set up is because in the beginning, when they go back to her his house, and then he like sends her off and tells her oh go over to santa monica boulevard there's a taxi stand he doesn't walk her there he doesn't take her there he doesn't drive her anywhere and he sends her out the door and then he goes to bed and so you you leave that opening like section of the movie thinking like this is what happened and then as it goes along you start to think like well maybe that wasn't what happened it's possible that he did kill this girl and that this is sort of an unreliable narrator situation and i think that that's really um a really fun way to to play with the story and um so the reason i'm disappointed a little bit with the way that it ends and i think it's fine it's it's really good because like you say i mean ultimately the murder isn't necessarily the the main point of the movie but um i wish that they had not Answered the question. I wish that they had left it unresolved.
1: I think that they kind of had to answer the question because it's 1950. Yeah. And if it had been left open that he could have possibly committed the murder, there would have been that sense. There's a question about whether or not it would have even made it past the censors. True. Um, would they have been able to say, like, well, he obviously didn't kill her, uh, but if if they're leaving it ambiguous then well he could have killed her which means that the murderer is getting away with it yeah uh and so man, i think that he's good sucked man <laughs> it's uh what i'm glad what i'm glad about is that they don't they don't impose a happy ending right on this because it like i say, by the end of the film it really does not matter if he killed this girl or not yeah um you know the fact it, is he's
0: dangerous and scary and yeah. she is wrecked mentally because of
1: it it's it's that sense that he could have killed her and not only could he have killed her because he is because he he was you know the last person to see her because of all of the other things that go into that just circumstantially but because of his violence and because of his problems Mm -hmm. he there is yeah so and and like like you say the violence that he at that he commits against other people in her seeing he commits violence against her he's abusive towards her yeah um and i'm glad that it wasn't like okay well well, now we're gonna salvage the relationship It's like no this because it because you know next time he could kill her Mm -hmm.
0: like sure Uh, he didn't kill that girl but he could kill some other girl and it could be this one yeah
1: yeah exactly and and so she declines to participate in that (laughs) she and and so that's that's where i think the film is so interesting is because it isn't in in a similar way that a lot of film noirs are that it really isn't about the mystery it's about the psychology of the characters involved in it Mm -hmm. and um and i think it's particularly interesting in that it is about masculine violence Um, and it is about the burden that women bear particularly and gloria graham is fantastic Mm -hmm. uh, in this film and and it's about the the burden that she bears both as being someone who is in love with him right and at the same time eventually recognizing that she needs to escape that he's dangerous um and that this is not a relationship that is going to end happily in any way and she has she basically runs away from him
0: yeah yeah because she has to because she doesn't see any other choice
1: yeah so it's it's a really unique noir uh and and kind of unexpected in a lot of ways and it's it's interesting that it's sort of begins to slide into um you know it's sliding into the 1950s and the 1960s when you get a lot more exploration of these kinds of subject matters um in in a a psychological and a um morally ethically complex way that you maybe don't expect from films of this of this period
0: Mm -hmm. i think that's what makes noir such a fun uh inclusion in this time is because it's so different from like the big happy like family movies or the studio musicals things like that these are all happening around the same time but um they're sort of like these noirs are sort of counter programming to uh the other stuff that the studios are putting out
1: yeah that's fascinating so uh one of the other ones that i wanted to talk about and i guess we could kind of argue about whether or not this is even a noir um key largo i have not seen it you've not seen key Largo. No, oh it's
0: been on my list for a million years <laughs> oh
1: my god how can you have not seen key I Largo, key have. Largo is, I know it's classic I know, it's classic. I know. <laughs> um all right well, well I'll just talk about it really briefly and then we can move on since you haven't seen it uh but key Largo is an interesting film it's the last film that Bogart and McCall made together uh and and it's it's another one now this pairs this pairs Bogart with a another sort of famous classic film heavy uh edward g robinson mm-hmm. and it is fascinating just to watch the two of them square off but this is this is a story where you know you've got a bunch of people basically trapped by a storm uh on on key largo and they're in they're trapped in a small hotel and um uh and edward g robinson and his girlfriend and his henchmen arrive and they are these gangsters on the run basically and so but they're all trapped here because they can't leave the island because of the storms they've got to wait it out and it becomes this sort of simmering pot of you know desire and fury and danger and everything and there's a lot of back and forth it is very noirish in a lot of ways uh but again it, it delves more and more into that that psychology of the characters it isn't just about you know how are they going to survive this this time with this gangster but it's about the um the psychology of the gangster himself the psychology of all of the other people involved and sort of the the secrets and the um the anguish that comes out as they're all forced to be in the same space together uh it is a great film and i am encouraging you karen and everyone who's listening to actually seek it out because it, it really is it's it's bogart and definitely G. robinson at some of their best work uh and it also has lauren mccall it has uh lionel barrymore um it's directed by john houston and i'm trying to remember the name of uh, claire trevor as plays G. robinson's um girlfriend and she is wonderful she i think probably gives the most heartbreaking performance in the entire group
0: so yeah no i've seriously been wanting to watch it forever um whenever i think of it i look and it's not like streaming on any of the services i have so one of these days very soon i'm just gonna have to pay and watch it
1: <laughs> just go for it
0: okay i
1: will just go for it it's worth it it's worth it uh i happen to have an entire collection of bogey and it's like it's a warner brothers question like bogey and Bacall.
0: see i just need to buy that (laughs) yeah it's all of
1: their films on in like dvd form and yeah it's, it's great uh so i think that probably we want to sort of jump ahead a little bit and and talk about probably the last two noirs that bogart made which are the desperate hours Mm -hmm. uh, and the harder they fall which is sort of a noir sort of not again it's debatable um but let's talk about the desperate hours
0: yeah i'm gonna admit i have not seen the harder they fall either so
1: well let's talk about the desperate hours karen you love this movie i do love
0: this movie (laughs) um actually first of all i want to just say that this movie well really the play that it's based on um led to a really interesting and kind of debatably not great uh supreme court case actually um because so the i don't know if you know the whole history on that but um, the so the th- there was a novel and then that was adapted by the same writer into a play and then eventually that was adapted into a screenplay and life magazine did a story uh, because it was supposed to be based on a true story and the family that it was based on the hill family they said that like this happened it was like 19 hours or so that they were held hostage but um really nothing happened the the three guys the three like escaped convicts or whatever were not mean to them were pretty polite just needed a place to crash for a while and then they eventually just left and everything was okay and uh they got i think they were caught and rearrested and everything but um basically everything that happens in the story was very made up for you know for dramatic purposes which is what happens and why you should not just accept that when something is based on a true story that that actually means it's based on a true story um but anyway what happened was life magazine did a story on it and they hired actors to pose in the family's house because the family had eventually like sold the place and moved away and they were running this story as if most of what happened in the the dramatized version of it was the real case and so the family sued time who owned life magazine and it ended up going all the way to the supreme court and ultimately it was like this weird decision richard nixon was the 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 hill family's lawyer he argued it in the supreme court like before he was uh in politics um but basically the decision if i if i have this correct it was that um journalistic publications are allowed to print more or less whatever they want if they don't if they're not doing it for nefarious purposes and if they believe that the story is true so yeah jesus (laughs) yeah (laughs) so that has a lot of long reaching implications you know even up to today so yeah time time inc versus hill it's from like the 60s i think is when it went to the supreme court but yeah it's an interesting case you should read up on it um wow. but yeah that's what it stemmed from from this movie the play the book uh, all written by the same writer but um anyway <laughs> besides the fact um the dramatization is awesome <laughs> it's not what really happened to the family but it's awesome it's a really good story and um uh, i think that what for me what makes it so interesting is once again you've got um it's it it's sort of this situation where people are not it's not that they aren't who they say they are but you just it, as you go through this experience with this family you start to see cracks beneath the surface and things aren't it's it you know it's set up as this kind of like cleaver family like they're perfect and it's a mom and a dad and a daughter and a young son you know the perfect nuclear family of the 50s and you know the dad and the kids they go off to work mom stays home this home invasion happens and led by humphrey bogart which i mean if he broke into my house i'd be like sure would you like can i get you a beer like what would you like <laughs> <laughs> but but it's interesting because as the time goes and as everyone in the situation is getting more and more desperate for the exit, basically, um, you really start to see beneath the surface and you start to really understand who all of these people are and that their um, their stories are more complicated than the surface level. And it's really interesting watching, especially Humphrey Bogart and Frederick March. Um, uh, kind of butting heads and just the conversations that they have and sort of this um frederick march plays the dad and he's got this son who sort of looks at him as a coward and and wants him to fight back and he's trying to trying to show his son that there's lots of different ways to do that and i just i love it i think it's so good
1: it's it's a really great like there's so much simmering tension throughout that entire film. And, and like I say, like I said earlier, Bogart is scary. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and he's kind of going back to him for, from a lot of his later career, he really wasn't playing villains at all. And he's kind of going back to, um, the kind of the, the sort of villains that he was playing in something like the petrified forest, uh, where he's, he's quite frightening and he's quite, but again, complicated, like you're interested in his Uh character. Uh, but you know
0: he's bad
1: yeah <laughs> <laughs> he
0: will kill you dead
1: <laughs> yeah exactly and and it's um i remember i've only seen it once and so i don't have like a strong memory about the entire plot arc or anything but i just remember watching it being like this just just my immediate reaction was, this is really good like why don't more people talk about this film mm-hmm. um it, because it's such a uh, it's such a small film in a lot of ways it's a fairly small cast of characters it all takes place in a house you know all of that but it it creates the sense of claustrophobia the sense of you know that invasion of suburbia um, that a lot of home invasion films make such great use of mm-hmm. and and kind of yeah like you say revealing the cracks revealing the sort of the fears etc that are un- that's underlying this very kind of pristine existence
0: yeah and
1: um,
0: i've seen a few other movies that have tried to do similar things that have either directly or indirectly homaged it i'm trying to think of some examples right now and of course i can't but um but yeah this is a movie that is so well done and if you have not seen it i highly recommend that you watch it um i wonder if it's streaming anywhere right now but it's got it's it's one of those where it has a lot of different things happening all at once because you also do shift perspectives to the cops that are trying to stop you know trying to catch these guys because it's bogey and two accomplices the three of them escape together in fact i think one of the guys is supposed to be his younger brother if i remember right and um so that that adds another layer because it's like obviously he wants himself and his brother to get out of this situation and um yeah uh it's streaming on cbs all access but that's it Hmm. but yeah another one that you should definitely check out if you have not seen it fellow listeners
1: yeah definitely Uh, and it's directed by william wyler who you know i I think that that's that that should say it all it's a good Mm -hmm. film
0: (laughs) (laughs) yes definitely uh
1: so the last kind of noir that i wanted to mention really quickly um is is one that i again i think doesn't get a great deal of attention and probably should it's a film called the harder they fall which is technically i think bogart's very last movie um i'm not certain he may have filmed i think he completed filming on it earlier maybe than the desperate hours or something like that but it's it was the final film fi- his final film to be released um since so nineteen fifty six it's a boxing movie, but what it is actually about is um Bogart plays a boxing promoter who uh Uh, kind of gets involved with a a manager played by rod steiger and a a boxer who's this guy um who's basically he he's basically being paid being paid to um uh pretend to be a boxer so everybody that he fights is taking a fall and it's it's this sort of use of um this use of this guy he he's not aware of it he doesn't know basically he has a glass jaw he gets punched and he goes down um and, but he's he's unaware that all of these other people are uh, that this is kind of turning into a circus. All of these other people are being paid for him to take a for for them to take a fall and for him to look like the victor. Uh, and so eventually he it gets to the point where he's going to have a real fight. And this. Creates tensions because everyone's like, you know, if he actually goes into a boxing ring with a real boxer, who not being paid to take a ball, he's gonna die. He's gonna get killed. This, you know, this guy is is a champion. He is going to, um, he he's gonna get murdered. Uh, and but what the film is is very much about is about the um, the the circus nature, circus like nature of boxing, particularly in that period of the way that boxers are exploited of the way that everybody exploits them um and it's it's a it's a really interesting and complicated film and again you've got two fantastic actors you've got Humphrey Bogart on the one side and Rod Steiger uh kind of again going up going up against each other in this this great deal of moral issues and where things are going to break right so at what point is like okay this has gone too far this isn't this isn't nice anymore this is dangerous this guy's gonna wind up dead Uh, and and again it's a really interesting film it's a in many ways it's a great way for bogart to go out Uh, and and he doesn't he's an interesting character in the film because he's sort of the he's kind of the narrator he's sort of the storyteller he's like okay here's what happened you know um but he is the film's moral center And it's interesting that that is the way that he ended his career versus something like the desperate hours where he's kind of the the eruption of the chaos world the gangster right uh the gangster who's sort of outlived his his usefulness or outlived his um uh he's outlived being an icon in some way yeah so i i do recommend the harder they fall it is an interesting film it's um it was available for a while on the criterion channel i'm not certain if it is anymore uh but currently it is um it's a lesser known film that i think deserves a a lot more attention just for its complexity yeah so are there any other films that you want to mention before we before we close things out we've talked mostly about his noirs are there any like non-noirs that you're like oh this is really good
0: (laughs) i mean like all of his movies are good but uh i've already uh drooled about casablanca i love that movie so much um in fact i'm gonna go watch that today um but the african queen is a lot of fun i think that's the one that he finally won his oscar for um he was nominated three times um but yeah the african queen is fun with katherine hepburn i love sabrina um And yeah, the key mutiny is good too.
1: Like, he's just scenes. so
0: good he's so good
1: he's, he's really good and i think it does say a lot that you know he was in comedies he was in wars <laughs> yeah. he plays these like hard-boiled detectives he plays these like gangsters but then he also is like these romantic leads who are sort mm-hmm. of funny and, and everything and i yeah i like that um, but he
0: pretty much always plays someone who has at least a bit of an edge like he's never yeah. he's never just this like just totally lovely and perfect human being <laughs> and i think that's part of the appeal of him is that he is always you know a little bit rough a little bit like a little bit frightening and intense and that's just part of his magic and charm
1: yeah exactly uh one other film i did really want to mention is um stand in which i have talked about i've talked about on twitter a couple of times um this is one that i don't know why people don't see it more because it's really funny and it has a great cast and is just basically hollywood riffing on itself and making fun of itself in like the 1930s so it's uh it's leslie howard uh humphrey bogart and joan Blondell, and they're marvelous together the whole story is is essentially bogart is a uh if i remember correctly he's a director in a studio that is like poverty row studio basically and <laughs> they're losing their funding uh, they're they're about basically they're not making money anymore. And Leslie Howard plays this sort of you know geeky accountant who shows up to like figure out what is going wrong with the studio and streamline everything and um, you know start they need to start earning money basically. Hmm. And then Joan Blondell is this actress who used to be sort of famous, but she does she's not famous anymore, essentially. And so she gets into a relationship with Leslie Howard and there's all this back and forth. It's really funny. It's like a screwball comedy, but it's set in Hollywood. So it's all like Hollywood backlots. Uh, And it mocks heavily, like pretty much everything to do with Hollywood filmmaking from this period. It's very funny. It's very sweet uh and and it's just it's a lovely little entertainment and it's an opportunity to see bogart kind of play a much lighter character than maybe we're used to uh particularly at that point in his career Mm -hmm. so i do recommend if you can hunt it down i i have a feeling that it's probably like available on youtube or something like that because it's one of those films that just people do not watch or talk about but it is absolutely worth checking out uh so yes, stand in awesome everyone knows uh so i think that is going to wrap us up in talking about humphrey bogart and what an icon he is um sorry
0: uh yes stand-in is available for free on youtube of
1: course it is uh, so, as always, we want to thank our, our patrons who have been supporting us on Patreon and continue to do so. We are making changes so that things will be a lot more streamlined, and, um, and thank you so much for your patience. So thank you very much to Heather, Adriana, Michael, James, Katie, Carriotta, Mason, Matthew, Michelle, Monty, Nanina, Nicole, Robert, Sharon, Steve, Tao, and Will. Uh, we're really, really grateful to everybody who decides to patronize us. <laughs> uh, and the only the way only... we'll allow it. <laughs> <laughs> we started that at the same time. <laughs> if you do want to support us on Patreon, we're on patreon.com slash citizen dame. And you can get some fun things. We do have some more bonus episodes coming up, including talking about the long goodbye. So check those out uh we have our previous bonus episode which was the haunting from october um and that's one of my favorite haunted house movies so you if you want to be a patron you can go and listen to that so good uh you can also buy stuff from us including masks wear your fucking masks please wear your masks this could all be over so soon if you just wear your masks uh on it's our Zazzle, hard. <laughs> it's so easy on our zazzle store that's zazzle.com slash citizen dame pod and if you want to throw us a few dollars without making a commitment we do have a ko fi that's co-fi.com slash citizen dame of course you can follow us a multitude of ways we are on twitter and instagram at citizen dame pod you can email us that's citizen dame pod at gmail.com ask us questions give us suggestions. Um if you're an asshole, we will read it aloud on the podcast and mock you. Uh, <laughs> you can also go to our website. Um that's web that's citizendamepod.com. Sorry, citizendamepod.com where we have reviews. Uh I'm gonna have some more reviews of some Blu-rays coming up. I think Karen is gonna have a couple of new things going up. Mm-hmm. And of course you can contact us individually. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at LH Business. Karen, where are you?
0: I am on Twitter and Instagram at Karen M. Peterson.
1: And that's going to close us out. Thank you so much for listening. We will be back next week. Bye. So you're a private detective. I didn't know they existed except in books or else they were greasy little men snooping around hotel corridors. Oh, you're a mess, aren't you?
0: Hmm. I'm not very tall either. Next time I'll come on stilts, wear a white tie and carry a tennis racket.
1: I doubt if even that would help. Now this business of dad's. Think you can handle it for him?
0: It shouldn't be too tough.
1: Really, I would have thought a case like that took a little effort.
0: Not too much.
1: What will your first step be?
0: The usual one.
1: I didn't know there was a usual oh, one. Oh,
0: sure there is. It comes complete with diagrams on page forty-seven of How to Be a Detective in Ten Easy Lessons, Correspondence School Textbook. And uh, your father offered me a drink.
1: You must have read another one on how to be a comedian.
0: You hear what I said about the drink.
1: I'm quite serious, Mr. Marlar. My father's said to father cannot help yourself.